You're listening to Angus Underground, featuring insight, opinion, and answers to the questions on everyone's mind. Prepare to be educated, entertained, and empowered with insight, news, and conversation with today's newsmakers. From the well-known to the not-so-well-known, raise your flag and join the revolution as your hosts, David, Joe, and Corbin, take you underground. So, guys, the National Junior Angus Show just concluded. What a great event. Uh, I learned a lot, and, and we certainly learned a lot from our previous episode. We had Eric Schaefer and Corbin Cowles on, present board member and past board member, and uh, Caitlin Brandt, who's activities and events director at American Angus. They did a great job. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I've never seen a, a group of young people so articulate and so collected. You said that one kid was in the back of a pickup or something. Yeah, Eric. He, <laughs> they were going somewhere to pick up some cattle, and he's riding in, in the backseat of the pickup. And at one point before the interview concluded, he's standing out in front of the truck at a gas station. No, they were good. They were good. <laughs> you guys probably noticed in the last episode that I was driving down the road whenever I was recording, and I did not get positive feedback as Eric did. <laughs> you didn't. That's because most of the time it sounds like you're in a porta potty on the side of the road. That's <laughs> what it sounds like. Fair enough. Well, listen, we can only afford so much in, in terms of equipment, but we got a lot of great feedback off that episode. A lot of folks I know that have very young children that are interested in Angus cattle, interested in showing. And uh, they reached out to me and they said, hey, we didn't know there was all these other activities that they could participate in. So uh, I hope it was rewarding for some folks. By the way, did you guys catch the uh, Walton Webcasting broadcast of the National Junior Show? Only because you shared it with me. I was like number one fanboy when (laughs) Dallas and Tom Burt came on. Holy moly, huh? Yeah, yeah. Dallas Woltemath and Tom Burke, they were basically doing play-by-play and color commentary during the show. Wow, wow. You talk about really cool. They had the pedigrees in front of them with these heifers that are being shown. And Tom's talking about a cow back in the pedigree that's 10 generations removed and giving you all the historical perspective. Man, that was so cool to watch. And then they took uh, on-air requests they were taking guests. <laughs> Daryl Silvera called in. I mean, it was like, it was incredible. Even the Angus Underground got a shout out. The Angus Underground got a shout out. Yeah. Is that not awesome? Fixing to snipe some listeners is what we're going to do. <laughs> Did you guys hear there were 6,321? Tom Burke says, we have a breaking news bulletin uh, to announce. <laughs> 6,321 people watching that thing. Golly. That's good. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I tell you what, very well done. Those guys did an awesome job. And uh, Walton Webcasting did a great job of broadcasting the event. And to your point, too, you said to me when we were watching at one point, I was driving. I finally pulled over for one of the division drives or something. The camera angles were fantastic. Yeah. I mean, they did a good job of getting good shots of all the heifers. I thought that the commentators... Boyd and Grimes were earlier. They did a good job of announcing all the exhibitors. They did. And the towns that they were from. What a celebration of Angus genetics is what it was. Celebration of Angus genetics. Absolutely. Future of our breed. I want to say something. Caitlin was on the last episode. And when I went to junior nationals with my kids, and actually I was an advisor, Amy and I were, whether you've participated or not, or if you just see this or have went and watched it, Jacqueline... She was uh, had Caitlin's job when I went, but what Jacqueline and Caitlin and all them ladies do is freaking awesome. I mean, it's unbelievable the stuff that they do and the stuff they have to put up with and the people that are mad about they yeah. got two bags less shavings than the next guy or they didn't get enough space or whatever, and they handle it all awesome. They do a fantastic job. How many of you been to, Vince? One and done. <laughs> What about you, David? Do you have a tally? Yeah, I've only shown in one. I've been to two. Really? Oh, now, wait a minute. I didn't show. I took my kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great event, and it's grown immensely over the years. And uh, it's just just awesome. But the heifers are top-notch, by the way. I mean, you could see that just, just watching it on Walton Webcasting. I mean, you're splitting hairs when you're picking a class winner. And so I learned a couple of new reasons 
yesterday, a couple of new descriptive terms, big haired and weak papered. Oh dear. So whenever they say weak papered, are they talking about the hair shedding <laughs> EPD? The numbers <laughs> or the pedigree or what? Oh dear. Yeah, that's wild. That's wild. I'll have to do some research. And this was the own show. This is not the PNG show, which is phenotype and genetics. It's just the own show that I assume they're supposed to be evaluating these cattle just based on their confirmation. But apparently the judges were provided the EPDs. But yeah, interesting. You know, we we could talk for a day about the disconnect between show cattle and production real world cattle. But I think if we did that, we'd be doing an injustice because this is not about the cattle. It's about the kids. It's about fostering the next generation of Angus breeders and, and industry leaders. By the way, Joe actually brought this up. Really great family from Tennessee. Had a monster week at the National Junior Show. Allison Davis and then her parents, Mark and Loretta from uh, where are they from? Uh, Shelbyville, Tennessee. Is that right? Vince told me you got to put marbles in your mouth to be able to say it right. Shovelville. Shovelville. He said shovel. <laughs> Shovelville. 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 But, but a great family. Great family. And so they just dominated in the Bread Known Show. And to me, that's the cool part. The Bread Known Show. They're not out there buying eighty, ninety, hundred thousand dollars show heifers. They're raising these heifers. David, the Bread and Own heifer, four generations of this young lady's breeding. Yeah, that's, that's great. Four generations, her prefix all the way back. What else do we talk about on the Angus Underground? That's why I was so pumped up. No, we talk about having your own program, your own identity, all that stuff. She did it. This young lady did it herself, which was fantastic for me. So cool. So cool. It's awesome. Yeah, bread known champion heifer. And I believe reserve bread known cow calf. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. They do a great job. The whole family. Oh, that's what's cool. Not only the kids. The kids are great you know, at this event, but you have to look at their support system, the parents, the family. I mean, what a sacrifice in, in all reality, in all reality. I know a lot of these folks, they have jobs off the farm, you know, so they're taking their two weeks vacation right there. I don't think this enterprise necessarily funds itself, by the way, either. No, no. There's quite a financial commitment that goes along with it too. Absolutely. Listen, we're trying to get Corbin fired up about getting a $40,000 show heifer for Mila. But and, and our producer, Shauna, she said, the heifer's the cheapest part. <laughs> so did you guys catch on the on the broadcast when Tom Burke was talking to uh, interviewed the Sankeys? They came on. Yeah. Yeah. They introduced Cody as being um, what he say? He said he had an Angus pedigree top and bottom, which I thought was fantastic. <laughs> but the part I wanted to bring up is he had Cody. He proceeds to talk about the main junior nationals, the half Angus show. <laughs> It was a half angus. <laughs> it was really cool because Cody shared about how in the elevator, somebody of influence was in the same elevator as him puffing out their chest, right? It was Mark Few, wasn't it? I don't recall. I didn't catch that part. I think it was Mark Few, the basketball coach at Gonzaga. That's what it was. And he was saying, yeah, this is what we're doing here, blah, blah. Well, what are you doing here? And Cody said, well, I, I'm, I get to be part of a convention for all of the next young leaders of this country. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, well, what's that? <laughs> Cody said, we're going to the National Junior Angus Show. Amen. And I don't think that's something I didn't think about. I was really passionate about speaking in leadership contests, but did them all through FFA and uh, didn't really know that was an opportunity through the Angus Association, the Junior Angus Association. And, yeah. and I think that's one thing we've, we've chided the heck out of Corbin, but for the young people that have an Angus pedigree, figure out how to get them engaged in some of these networking opportunities where they can also build their leadership skills among their peers, I think is a fantastic opportunity that the Angus Association provides. Absolutely. What Cody was getting at was that in uh, 30 years, Allison, with her four-generation deep pedigree, will be the first female president of the United States, future leaders of America. Could be. Could be. I'm putting in the early call, guy. What odds you give me? You never know. I know she'd be an improvement of that. <laughs> Listen, after the last two presidents, anything's possible. <laughs> I'm sorry, the last three. But uh, no, it's a great event. Great event. Yeah. Hats off to all those folks behind the scenes. And, and by the way, Vince brought up, he and Amy were uh, advisors. I mean, that's, that's a huge role. And that's a thankless role. And then the good ladies on the Angus Auxiliary, they're not doing this for attention or notoriety. I have to say something because Amy, if she hears this, I'm going to be in big trouble. Amy did all the work, as she <laughs> said, and she did. But she said, I always just stepped in and got all the glory for it. 
And I did a lot of times, but <laughs> how's that earth shattering? Uh, that's what I would have expected. Well, I had to say that she was actually the one to do it because then she would be mad at me forever for not saying it. <laughs> well, it goes without saying, but she did. She did a lot. She did a good job, but that's a big commitment in itself. You know, it is. It is. Yeah. I know there's a leader out here in California does the same thing. Yeah. She's pulling teeth to get entries and all the stuff from our California Angus Association that needs to come in and, and just drives the bus for everyone. And it's a thankless, non-paying job, but they have a passion for it. And it doesn't go unnoticed by the breeders, or it shouldn't anyways. Absolutely. And it, yeah, it's just, just a great event for the kids. And as we learned in the last episode, you don't have to have a heifer at the show. No, you don't. Jeez, they've got like 30 other events you can participate in. Have you seen the one that's exploded has been the steer show? The steer show's really exploded. And I think, isn't it the National Junior Angus Show also has a, a feeder steer class too? No, no. It's, it's, is, is that a different one? Yeah, it's a different one. So they have, I don't know if you call them finished steers because they don't, they don't have to go to kill there. Oh, they don't. Okay. No, but they do have a carcass contest for those that don't bring steers. Okay. Okay. So it's two separate contests, but you can take your steer there and still drag him to the state fair, the county fair. I think the point you're trying to make is there's just a whole diverse opportunities for kids there to do things, which is cool. Talking about a kid's not having to show cows there, Montana represented Erica Coleman won the whole photo contest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Beautiful photo. Oh, it was awesome. And she does a fantastic job taking photos like landscape. Oh, she does. She's she's very yeah. talented and a great young lady. You know, for the longest time, everybody was giving Larry all the credit for the photos, but it's actually Erica behind the camera. <laughs> I think she took those ones in the sire directory, didn't she? Like of Larry catching fish and stuff. I think she took those. Oh, yeah. And they're incredible. Yeah, the sale catalog had a bunch of stuff. Oh, I thought those were selfies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> she got one. She got one of um i think it was dawson walking across the parking lot and there was a john deere tractor and square brother and a lightning bolt coming down it was the coolest picture amen it was awesome yeah that's great that's great well we've got a really fun episode coming up it's uh <laughs> we're actually going to try to answer questions actually answer one question that was posed by uh, one of our past guests so we urge you to stay tuned and we urge you to uh, give us feedback after the episode and uh, answer the question. Let us know. Let us know. We'll be back right after this break. Are you looking to market your semen or embryos? Introducing GeneBrokers.com, the industry's first true breeder-to-breeder online marketplace. Whether you're cleaning out your tank or selling semen on your special herd sire, GeneBrokers.com provides a platform to showcase your genetics to breeders from around the globe. Our intuitive portal allows you to create listings, monitor inventory levels, and customize your storefront. With GeneBrokers.com, there are no listing fees and a modest 10% transaction fee due at the time of sale. For those looking to purchase genetics online, GeneBrokers.com offers dynamic sorting functions to help you narrow your search to find exactly what you're looking for. Each transaction is fast, easy, and secure. All sales are backed by GeneBrokers' quality guarantee policy for smooth, hassle-free transactions. To make your next purchase or to begin marketing your genetics, visit GeneBrokers.com, where you'll find genetics at the speed of commerce. Welcome back to the Angus Underground. As promised, we had our, our good friend George Chambers on a couple episodes ago, and he posed a question to us. And we thought out a celebration of his 50th birthday, which was a couple weeks ago, that we would address the question of, where will you be when you get where you're going? You know, it's a real simple statement, David and Corbin. Vince is here too. And I think when you really start unpacking this, you'll find out that we're going to go four different directions on this one, but we're going to have a lot of fun with it. It's a deep subject for shallow minds. Well, you'll take us to the show, and I'm sure. Ever since George asked that question, I've been itching and burning. I need some Tanactin to cure my itch, but <laughs> this is something I've been really excited to talk about. Oh, that's funny. No, it's, it's a great philosophical question, and I think whether you're in the cow business or whatever you do for a living, whatever your motivations are, I think it's a good question to ask yourself from time to time. So, Joe, where will you be? When you get where you're going. Well, uh, 
takes a lot of thought. I mean, how much time do I have? <laughs> I already talked to you guys about this in the warm up section. And I told you, if you, if you throw it to me first, you're going to get 20 minutes of the very first rating we ever had on the podcast, which was Moviate, right? I've got the buzzer ready. It's all right. You know, I told you guys this and and it's going to turn into story time again, which that's what I'm good at and what I enjoy doing. I'll try to make it as short as possible. But in the past 30 days, I've lost two of my heroes. And it was funny. I didn't even think of the word hero until one of the folks was being eulogized um, by a family member. And they said, this man was my hero. And I started thinking about it. And I was like, you know, I'm pretty sure he was one of my heroes too. And what's interesting is with both of those gentlemen who are really, really impactful in my life, They both had cattle and they both had a deep passion for improving their cattle and changing them to meet whatever it was they were trying to accomplish. And when I really started digging into what George had shared with us a couple months ago, or maybe even a month ago, I thought, I wonder if those gentlemen even knew, or if they were just doing the steps, maybe they were just breeding cattle the way they thought made sense, but they didn't know how to measure if they got where they were going. For me here at Bruin, and I'll dive into it, not all at one time, we'll take it piece by piece, but it kind of breaks up into three categories for me. It's what my customers will look like, what the what the phenotype or the physical appearance of my herd will look like. You can go into data or you can go into the genetic makeup of the herd, the herd itself, what it'll look like, and then what the business will look like. And I think that those three things are really important to consider as you're, you're considering the direction of your herd and where you'll be when you get where you're going. And it's almost as philosophical as what your legacy will be. I was sharing with you guys, you ever look at pedigrees and, and how many prefixes elicit a response from you? You know, David, when you go use a bull, there's certain bottom lines on a pedigree that elicit a response, right? I mean, there's some that fit and there's some that don't. Yeah, absolutely. I guess I'm a, a little bit of a snob, but yeah, there are pedigrees. I see certain uh, prefixes in there. I just move on. I, I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to go there. I've had some experience in the past with it. And there are others I trust implicitly. And I feel the same. And, and I guess, I don't want to say it's a fear, but something that fuels me to stay relevant is being relevant. I don't want to be a prefix in the future that people look at and know nothing about. I hope to elicit a response. And for folks that want to use our genetics, they'll know exactly what those animals mean. And that's that's the value of a pedigree. That's understanding a pedigree. You know, we talked a little bit about the Angus broadcast that we heard yesterday and we're recording two weeks before. So it happened a couple of weeks ago, but Tom Burke said something that was so awesome in the broadcast. He said, if you lined up all the proven queens and you lined up all the Phyllises and you lined up all the forever ladies, boy, it'd just bring a tear to your eye, wouldn't it? <laughs> and it's Tom, Indeed. right? Like Tom knows how to do that stuff. And he's so whimsical and artsy in how he presents it and, and articulate at the same time. He also said something else that was kind of funny. I can't remember what he said, but something about Herford. What was that? Oh, he was talking, <laughs> him and Dallas were talking about brisket. It was fantastic. <laughs> we were calling it the brisket chat. It was awesome. But, but the point being, the value of the pedigree is if it paints a picture of the genetics you're going to be bringing into your herd. And when you understand the guy that was behind the helm at that time or the gal of that breeding program and what they were trying to achieve, those animals should breed true to that vision. And I hope that someday when I'm gone, I'll know I'm there when I've got where I'm going, if folks look at the pedigree and they say, well, this is how we use a Bruin animal. And um, it won't be a forgotten thing. It's what makes you immortal in this business. And I know there's some that I look back many generations on down the line and you can see what those folks were trying to achieve. And you could see the story that those cattle weave. I mean, am I capturing that accurately, David? Yeah. And I do have a question. I know uh, you and I talk about this personally a lot. You're what I would call a genetic hoarder. You've claimed that title yourself. <laughs> my, my question with a little tinge of humor to it is when you get where you're going and, and you're going to share these cattle with the world, are you going to sh- share the, the blueprint and the roadmap to how to use them? Well, if the general contractor is a different contractor, maybe he reads the <laughs> blueprint different, right? <laughs> you shared with me your hesitancy to share females is they're not going to be used properly, right? <sighs> Well, Joe, listen to this. If you don't start sharing some of these females, then uh, you're not going to be remembered. You're going to be on the top side of a lot of pedigrees, but you better come on with it. Yeah, no, that's a good point. We've rendered him speechless. I I think it's something to consider. You have rendered me speechless, but I'm not going to sell you some (laughs) female to breed to way up. I'm sorry, David. Not going to do it. And I like way up. It's all good. Yeah. You didn't even know you liked way up, did you? And now you do. 
I, I did not know that I liked way up until I went to Montana ranch and saw that, that cow's progeny. It was pretty incredible. I got a couple bulls to use on some of your cows. Yeah. Thanks Vince. <laughs> me too. Hold my beer and watch this, Joe. Just send me a cow. <laughs> if I were to start though, and I could already see the segments failing and our producers going to be freaking out. We're, we're waffling. No, we're 30 episodes in. And that's the first time I've heard the producer actually laugh out loud. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> At least we got that response. I want my customers to be more profitable. And I know that that's a real holistic view, but our commercial customers are our bread and butter here. And I want those folks to be more profitable. How often, David, have you seen people sell females at the pinnacle of value? And then they go on and they reached full retail value the day they were sold. And actually, that's something I saw at your sale that, that I could commend you quite a bit. I feel like people buy those cattle with value still in them. The folks can go on and they can they can make that animal a part of their breeding program and add value. They didn't just have every coin shook out of them and never heard from that cow again. I thought that was an accusation. Thank you for the praise. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was an accusation of Vince, really. But. <laughs> you know what's great about adding value to your customers is there's so many different ways to do that because you have such a variety of customers. So if you're taking that into account, you know, you've got guys that are taking them all the way to the rails. You've got guys that are keeping every heifer they can get a hold of. You've got guys that are selling them off the cow. So if, if you took care of your customers and you were able to check all of those boxes and do what they needed to be done for them, then then everything else would just fall right into place and, and you'll get where you're going. You know what I mean? That's what I was going to say. Every one of your customers will have different needs. And some of them you can help. And some of them are going to say, I wanted this animal to take over here and do something different with that you may not agree with, but they bought it and, you know, you can't help them. You can say, well, I don't know that that's going to work, but if that's what they want to do, you got to let them do it. I think that's a good point, Vince. I think it's a really good point. And I think that also, like, if I get where I'm going on a really unique breeding program, hopefully I cut down on my need to market because no one else is producing it. Right. The product is so unique that I can do the things I enjoy. I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. You've seen it with the pictures I've sent you and stuff. I enjoy being horseback. Yep. I love riding young horses. I love finishing horses. I love being out gathering with customers, with family, moving cattle around, enjoying the scenery, enjoying being part of that environment. I don't particularly love the marketing side of things, but if you develop a, a product that is so unique, there's only one place for it, folks will have to come and get it there. And I think that in order to stay relevant, you've got to keep your finger on the pulse of that customer. And that customer will drive your genetic trend and direction. And like you said, maybe they do take that animal a different direction than you would, but are they still driving your genetic trend within your herd? And that's what I hope to do. And, and I think that we've been doing that here, but ultimately someday we won't spend nearly as much on marketing, maintaining visual relevance out in the marketplace the customers themselves will drive it because they're profitable and they're actually seeing that value and they feel a part of the process. So that's how I feel about my customers when I get where I'm going. Wow. That was concise, Joe. Are you sure? A lot more than you would have thought. <laughs> no, that's segment one. That's segment one of three. <laughs> You're done already? Oh, man. It's going to be a long episode, folks. Y'all better just sit back. <laughs> So go on, share with us. You're going to make me do all three right now? Oh, no, we don't have to do that. Let's hear from Corbin. Corbin, where are you going to be when you get where you're going? So I will stick to just the customer side of things since that's kind of, I actually wrote down Joe's three categories. That's as many notes as I've taken here. But but as far as customers go, I hope they're still there. <laughs> I mean, that's that's as concise as I can make it. I hope I still have customers. If I don't have the vision for it, that's the ultimate goal though, right? I mean, would anybody else have a different goal than just, yeah, I hope they're still there. I don't think that's a responsibility though, Corbin, that a lot of seed stock producers embrace. I really don't. I don't think they embrace the responsibility of keeping their customers relevant in the marketplace. No matter if your customer is a seed stock guy, a commercial guy or gal, I don't think that that is thought. And really that's truly the role of a seed stock producer is, is to keep your customer relevant in the marketplace. You know, as we've kind of inched our way, we as in Rafter 5M has kind of inched our way into the marketplace and, and have kind of started introducing some genetics. It is one of my most favorite things about the business is having commercial customers contact me and question me about my genetics and they don't know anything about anything. And it's my favorite part of it is getting to explain them what my goals are and what I'm trying to do 
to make them better. And some of the guys resonate with me and some of them don't. Obviously, that's the way it's going to be. But that's one of the most rewarding things is whenever people really pick up on what you're putting down. I know Vince has been there too. Vince, what about you? To what you just said, I mean, if you have customers that rely on you to break it down for them and and tell them and have questions, that's, to me, easier than somebody that is a commercial breeder and they may pick up the journal or whatever, open sire catalogs left and right and see what's selling, and then they think they need that, and it won't even really work for them. And you can't sometimes explain to them why they don't need that or why they do need what you have versus that or or whatever but it is a lot nicer when when they come and with an open mind instead of a something that's already pre-set in their mind that they want or think they want Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and vince i think about those customers that are really a part of our genetic trend the ones i have the best dialogue with those are our backbone. The people that find us through advertising or something, they might come this year. They might come every five years. They may never come again. They might come every two years. Those are the people that we gladly take their merchandising dollar because it helps our business thrive. But our backbone, our decision are the folks that are like Corbin said, or like you said too, the folks that are calling and reaching out to you. And, And I guess that when I get where I'm going, we'll grow that base to where the backbone is big enough to support all of the product that we produce. And then it'll make the marketing come along a lot easier. Will we still need those impulse buys? Absolutely. And they help drive value and competition in the marketplace, right? They help drive competition in the marketplace. But as long as you have this rabid backbone that wants to be a part of what you do, and you could look at any products, right? I mean, look at clothing with Patagonia, North Face, all the different branding that we have nowadays. You go to some of the the really, really higher-end boutique-type stuff, and we don't need to get into boutiques today. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> Are you going to get into boutiques? Is that part of your deal? No. Okay. No, but I, I've got oh. a great episode coming up on boutiques. Don't ask, don't tell. No, it'll be good. It'll be good. But if you watch some of those people truly market, they don't market that hard. No. Their customers come find them. I know my wife comes and finds what she wants, right? <laughs> and I'm specific too on pants or shirts or whatever. I might wear the same blue shirt, but I go find it where I want it. So David, you've been quiet. I'm curious to see what you think on this topic. On the customer piece. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to mirror what you're saying, Joe. I want to see the same faces year in, year out. And I want them there because my product's working well for them. You know, we all trumpet the marketing slogan. You know, we want to bring more profitability to your operation. I mean, I use it in every ad I, I put out there. Unfortunately, we're we're in a, an era where there's only so much profitability that a seed stock producer can control for their commercial customer. Yeah, we, we can give them bulls. That's going to lower the carrying cost of their cows. Hopefully... Uh, you know, give them a little more pay weight at weaning. But in reality, how much of that do we actually control? I don't want to go down this tangent, but we're, we're not in a market right now where these commercial customers are price makers, they're price takers. Profitability, yes, we want to help there. We want to give them problem-free genetics. And I want to see the same faces sitting in the stands year after year after year. Yes. So we're on the same page there. And I guess that when I get to our next point, I want our customers to realize a lot of those things we do. You know, when we get to leisure and talking about spending time with family and what those quality experiences are, I want my customers to be afforded that opportunity because the products that they purchased from us have performed to that level of expectation that we sold them under, under that pretense. And they always have. I mean, we haven't fraudulently claimed cattle will do something, but we've used genetics. We've used some hammers to wrench on things before. And we've used some wrenches to hammer on things. And I think that as we continue to purify our breeding objectives, we found when you have the end in mind, which is what George was getting at, it makes this a lot, a lot easier. I think the easier piece for us to discuss here, which that one goes kind of clunky and I apologize, but what's your herd going to look like? Phenotypically, what's your herd going to look like, Corbin, when you get where you're going? This is a very interesting question because as we've talked about amongst ourselves already, we have no clue what the business is going to bring within the next five years, 10 years, 20 years. We have no idea. And what I'm going to say is probably going to kind of be what all four of us are going to to think on this deal is I want our phenotype to match 
what it is now. And that's, and that's what the commercial customer in mind, and that's for them to have profitability. And that, and that begins with the mother cow. And so if that mother cow is four years old and she comes up open, then, then that's a problem and that's not going to work. Or if, if a five-year-old cow is cold because you're having to milk her, I guess whenever it comes back down to it, you start talking about the customer and making it easier for them. So the phenotype will be driven by production, longevity, and just being profitable within the marketplace without having the problems. It's as simple as that. And I, and I know we can dive into certain things that drive us nuts about a cow, but when you get right back down to it, is a cow lasting for 10 or 12 years? Is, is she breeding back every year? Is she having a calf every single year that's above average? The ultimate goal is, is for every customer to have that phenotype. I want to jump in here, and this is real timely that we're having this part of the discussion. I'm in the midst of calving. When I look at the herd, the legacy that we have built or will leave, you know, I want it to be consistent and predictable. And then I want to piggyback onto what Corbin said. They need to be extremely problem-free. And for 30 years, it seems like whatever iteration of cattle that I've been breeding, I've been in a uh, state of perpetual growth, trying to grow the herd, grow numbers, make more more of them. Well, I'm at a, a spot right now where my numbers are maxed out, okay? And so what I'm really honing in on are those cows that cause me work, extra work, the cows that need attention. And uh, I think that's a pretty sweet spot to be in. It's very frustrating because I, I look back, I'm looking back at, at past year's records and I say, you know, this cow, she had to come into the shoot last year after she calved because of X, Y, Z. That's on me. And if I don't get rid of that cow now and just nip it in the bud, then I'm creating problems that will exist long after I'm gone that will end up at a customer's ranch. And I know we, we want to talk about this in this episode, I don't know if we'll get to it, but but that work-life balance. I don't want to negatively impact my customer's work-life balance. You just brought up something I want to unpack a second, though. And I don't know if I'd thought about this until this point. You talked about having a stable set of numbers, knowing what your numbers are, and then just continuing to whack on those and make them as suitable to that environment as you can. How many cattle producers do we all know who have had exactly the same stable numbers for, for years and years and years now? It seems like I have people that are growing, people that are shrinking, but in terms of a stable size, when we get frustrated about, about cattle and genetics that we bring in not doing things exactly the way we'd hoped or in an unpredictable nature, is that a symptom of, of how we ranch nowadays and having to take on leases and balloon up inventory or lose leases and, and lose inventory? And when maybe some of those older herds knew what they had, they had the right herd size, and all they had to do was continue to purify the quality. I think you just have to find what it requires to sustain your operation economically, number one. And, and number two, what's your available labor force to sustain it? So you have to match up your cow herd with your labor and you have to get a satisfaction of saying that's enough. You know, I'm making enough. I've got enough bull customers that, that can absorb this many bulls and quit trying to grow it. And I think that's part of the problem that's plaguing. And it's, this is not an Angus only topic here. Okay. It's not Angus specific because I, I've got good friends that raise Herefords, uh, friends that raise Simital, Shorthorns. They're all in the same spot, and they're not getting rid of the problems because they're in a state of perpetual growth. Well, fortunately and unfortunately, it starts and ends with the seed stock producer. So if we get rid of those problems now, then... And you know what? I'm going to sound like a broken record. It always comes back to the customer. But if we make that decision right now to get rid of those problems, then it makes it so much easier on down the line for everyone else. And so uh, I think a fun word that Joe mentioned while he was talking about this was stability. And getting to that point of stability should be one of those ultimate goals for every producer is where we're year in, year out. It's like clockwork. You just do it. You don't even have to think about it. Stability. Absolutely. And, and I'm going to share with you what I've been doing in this calving season. In years past, you know, I'd make a note in the calving book, cow didn't claim, you know, cow was rough with her calves, you know, stuff like that. You, you always go, well, okay, that was this year. Maybe it was circumstances. Next year, it'll be fine. This year, 
if I have to write anything in the comment section, it's call. It's just call. <laughs> I will pull that out next spring after we get weaned. And if it says call there, they're going to get called, period. I don't care if she got AI'd to the next greatest bull, she's going to get called. So I like this discussion because we haven't touched on actual phenotype at all. And that's not really what I meant on my roadmap. So I'm glad you guys didn't do that. If if I get where I'm going, though, I'll tell you, my herd will have more cows that are six and seven years old than first calf heifers. Amen. Yeah. When I look at one of the most exciting things about Maternal Plus is once you re-enroll, you guys have already gotten just pummeled with this, right? I'm sending you my bar graphs and my demos and all that stuff. It's really fun to unpack where you're going. And it may be somewhere you didn't think you were going. But if you add together those six and seven-year-olds and they're more than the first calf heifers, those are the genetics we're selling commercial customers. And I understand being in these periods of growth. And then I understand, David, I'd, I'd love to discuss this with you because you and I have had, and Vince too, we've had sidebar discussions about driving the profitability of our operations some of those females have value and you want to move them along and you want to keep as many females as you can and get them to their most valuable endpoint. There's one of the larger seed stocks producers in the country who, who we've looked up to on a lot of different things. If you look at the largest percentage of cattle that they sell in their production sale, it's replacement heifers. Why is that? Because they don't want to take the cost to get them to a bread, to cull, to cull, to cull and lose those. And I think it's a simple genius that some of us don't exercise. So when I get where I'm going, more six and seven-year-olds than first calf heifers. I like it for sure. I want to just tie into this real quick. I'm not going to bloviate on this, but our mutual friend, Brent Lonker, he's introduced me to a couple of operations there in Kansas. Uh, one's an Angus operation, one's a commercial operation, but Mitlers and Peltons. And Brent went in and toured those herds. And he came out and he told me, he said, guess how many replacement heifers they keep? And he he dropped that number on me. And I was just stunned. I thought, how can you keep that few replacement heifers and sustain your numbers? That's because they have focused on longevity. And so they're selling what, 85% of their calf crop now? Or more. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. Golly. They aren't selling 50% of their calf crop and then trying to figure out how to add value on these. That's going to drive profitability, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Ultimately, that's that's what it's all about. You know, we we don't need an army of PhDs at a land-grant university or a breed association. We don't need the breed publications <laughs> to tell us what these guys are doing, Meitlers and Peltons. That's the key. That's how it's supposed to be done, folks. We can say that we're in this perpetual race for improvement, but think back. Think back over the last 20 years. Have we seen that much improvement? I dare to argue we haven't. What's the easiest way to get your commercial customers more profitable is give them that model, right? Absolutely. Where they're selling 85%. But what do we say about commercial customers? I say this all the time. You better get out and see, if you're a commercial person listening to this podcast, get out and see your purebred producers heard because that's what yours is going to be in five years. Whether you like it or not, it's what it'll be. Absolutely. I need to throw it to Vince for a second. Vince has got something to share, I'm sure. Well, what I was going to say, it depends on talking about selling those calves and not retaining many. It, it also depends on where you're at. For me, it does. Like, I'm still trying to grow and I need to keep back as many heifers as I can. Because then what's my other choice to go out and buy something? I don't want to do that. I like what I'm raising better than what I could go buy. But it, I'm not to the point yet where I could just sell heifers. I've got to keep rolling things along. So it, I think it depends on where you're at. Because those guys, at some point, are they not going to wake up one morning and have 50 12-year-old cattle that they're going to have to roll out and then they haven't been keeping back? That year, they've got to keep 50 back to take those 50s place. Yes and no. In our model here, at the end of the year, I look at the percentages. Okay. I want to have X number of cows that are having mm -hmm. calves the following year. I look at the percentage of the cow herd that I'm culling. That's the percentage of heifers I need to keep. It's that simple because we're not growing. We're in a static state right now. Well, I can say too, as a commercial producer, it's so much easier because you're not following genetic trends. You're not trying to do anything. And so maybe that's something we all need to take into account. It's like, we don't need to follow genetic trends, but the commercial guy's not following genetic trends. And so it's a lot easier to keep a cow that's nine, 10, 11, getting up there in age 
Whereas if you're a registered breeder and like we've got this turnover of EPDs and everything else we have to take into account and it, and it makes it tougher to keep those older cows. But that's something that, that whenever I get where I'm going, I want to be that commercial producer that's utilizing that nine-year-old cow just like I should be, just like he is. And the role of the seed stock producers to provide genetic improvement. Where we get frustrated is, is, is in differing definitions of what genetic improvement is. You can genetically improve cattle by selecting for ones that live till they're 20. You can genetically improve cattle by selecting for the highest marbling ones. And when I get where I'm going talking about our cow herd, I mean, it's going to be a relatively closed herd where we bring in sire lines that are out cross, water them down across our families. I've shared this with you guys many times. We'll have many, many, many different female lines that we can use to cross back on each other but they'll be similar in type. They'll be the similar type, but all a different style and used for something different. And, and I think that getting to that closed herd, but still maintaining your relevance, trying to keep that edge, not staying closed-minded where you don't look around and you say, I've got it all figured out in barn blind. I think that's something that we can all fall into. And I've been guilty of that just as much as I've been guilty of being envious of what other breeders are doing. But I think once you center in on those goals, I, I'd love to be a closed herd other than outcross sire lines at some point for sure. Absolutely. But Corbin, when you find that 20-year-old cow that's did everything right and you look back and you sold eight of her daughters before you honed in on it, don't you wish you would have had those daughters back? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but you're leaving your legacy unlike Joe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm leaving it. It's just not available for public consumption. (laughs) It's available by a bull. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Race that sucker to the top side of the pedigree. Exactly. Exactly. You do your best to provide the best care to your cattle, yet despite your efforts, the cycle of life and death is inevitable in this business. When losses occur, questions run through your mind. What more could I have done? Do I have daughters of that cow? How much semen do I have from that herd sire? But perhaps the most important question is, how do I protect and preserve my investments? Well, the answer is simple, cost-effective, and as easy as calling Creek Insurance, owned by friend of Angus Underground and fellow Angus breeder, David Yackley. Working with Liberty Mutual and American Livestock, Creek Insurance offers livestock mortality coverage for entire herds or individual animals and is catered to your specific needs. For those wishing to offer insurance to their customers, give Creek a call to arrange for David to be present at your production sale to answer questions and provide coverage. In addition to this important coverage, Creek Insurance also offers policies for home, auto, homeowners, farm, ranch, equine, and contractors. To find out how Creek Insurance can protect your investments, go to creekinsure.com or call 360-266-8000. Again, go to creekinsure.com or call 360-266-8000. Now back to the show. So Joe, are you where you want to go? No. No, I don't know if I'll ever be. I mean, (laughs) and ultimately, I guess that last question is probably the one that gets even more holistic, David, with what does your herd look like in management and and not management like I'm going to feed more hay or I'm going to feed less hay. For me, it's have I fostered an environment that my children want to come back and run? Is it a business that has a sustainable enough following and a unique enough product that that can be financially viable? I don't notice I didn't say sustainable till now, but I said viable. (laughs) When I get where I'm going, this herd, this is the warm and fuzzy part where David will tune out because he doesn't like those things. But (laughs) I enjoy collaboration. I enjoy connecting with people. And Abby and I have talked about, we're in the hub of population in California where we can provide interface for people to see all the good that ranchers are doing. You know, when I get where I'm going, that's going to be a piece of it too, where people can come out and experience what ranchers do to take care of these resources we have at our disposal that, that sometimes we just take for granted because we do it all the time. And, and those folks need to understand the hard, hard work that it goes into to providing good stewardship to these wonderful things we've been provided. I'm thankful to have you, Joe, to do that because uh, <laughs> I kind of have the opposite uh, view on that. I, I just assume the people from California stay there and, and I'll stay here. Corbin's like, pave it, put in a strip mall, give me the cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll move further north. You guys just put a couple zeros on that check. 
Corbin, what's it mean to you? Where will you be when you get where you're going? Whenever this question was asked by George, this is kind of what hit me the hardest of anything. Where will I be when I get where I'm going? And when you just start thinking about that, your mind starts racing and you start thinking about what, where am I going to be? And then you start thinking about your family and your, and, and, and the word legacy starts coming to mind. That's the first thing that came to mind to me was regardless of who it is or what it is, hopefully it's my daughter. Maybe it'll be my wife. Maybe it'll be Joe. Who knows? But hopefully at some point I've created something here through, through hard work, through patience, through just years and years and years of hitting it hard that they can step in and they'll have something that they're proud of and something that's marketable and something that'll work. I want this deal to be generational. That's the ultimate goal for me. And I know that that's not everybody's goal because that's just not where we're all at. But in a perfect world, Mila steps in and says, dad, this is what I want to do. And I know that I'm probably shooting uphill here, but if she says, dad, thank you so much for doing what you did so that, so that I have something to take over. I don't, I don't know that those words are ever come out of her mouth, but, <laughs> but if they do that, that, and, and maybe it'll be actions more so than, than words, but, and I know, I know Vince has that same thought process going through his mind because it's, it's something as a family man, it's, it, you can't help but have those thoughts. Mate will be saying, dang you. <laughs> Thanks for all the cows. I'm selling them and buying new tractors. That's what Nate's going to be saying. <laughs> oh, that's great. But that's part of building a legacy. And your dad obviously contributed to where you're at today. Yeah, it's generational. Well, David, doesn't Shady Brook elicit a response from you? Absolutely. Without joking. Like, seriously, when I see that on the female side of a pedigree, I go, that means something. That does mean something. We talked about that, what a prefix means earlier. And yeah, that's that's one prefix that when I see it, I know it's it's high quality. Absolutely. It's it's built on great cow families and it depends on what era. <laughs> well, yeah, if we, if we want to go back 40 years back to when I was there, it's a little different story. <laughs> that's when we get to saying that phenotype word and you're like, "Oh man, I don't know." <laughs> I think a lot of those cows went extinct, thankfully. <laughs> So <laughs> they couldn't help but go extinct, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any more, Vince, as you look at answering that question? For me, I don't know. Like today, I think I should be, I'm trying to get to here. Today being A, B being the end of the line, but B may turn into C. Or I mean, because the things are constantly changing, the association or the industry, however you want to say it, is constantly changing. And absolutely, you know, if you don't change with it, you're going to be extinct. And I'm not saying that we should do everything that they push us towards doing or follow every trend that comes along. But I do think you have to consider some of them. I mean, go back 30 years ago. Would you have thought we would be where we are today? Go back 20 years ago. Would we have thought it? I mean, the vision that we had, yeah, we're all right now saying, oh, it's real easy to see, but it's not. I mean, because the industry changes and and we think what we're raising right now or what we're shooting for right now is the end of the line. And once you get so deep into that, then you get to to do fine tuning. You know, if you have a, a whole consistent herd, then you can start fine tuning things. But by the time you get to that, things might have changed. You might be looking at something a little differently. Well, see, this is where I think as breeders, we need to challenge each other. And you say, hey, listen, quit chasing that trend. You know, if you look back 30 years ago, 30 years ago, it was there. The blueprint was there for where we are today. Wouldn't you guys say that? For where we want to be, for where we all aim to be. Blueprints never changed. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's never changed. The cattle have changed, the people have changed, but the blueprint has always been the same. When Vince says change, he's talking about genetic trends and so forth and fads. And, you know, I, I think you just have to keep your eye on that, but don't buy in too deep. So when I heard the question from George, and by the way, I've heard the question from George many times. So when, when he said it in the episode, I, I wasn't taken aback, but I think it's a wonderful question. It's philosophical. It's a question that I wish I would have been asked 30 years ago, not that it would have changed the tra trajectory of of what I've done professionally, but now kind of uh, taking some time and, and uh, putting some introspection on it, 
and I appreciate where you guys are headed. You guys are, are looking at building a lasting legacy, something that you can pass along that's generational. I think it's more a matter of perspective, what your answer will be. And as Vince says, you know, change, change is inevitable. But I think your answer to that question changes with time and with age and perspective. I think back to when I was young, <laughs> way back when. That's a good memory. Yeah, it was. I think my answer to that question would have been more dictated by personal achievement. You know, I kind of had this vision in my mind of wasn't necessarily the kind of cattle, but it was how I would be viewed by others. Okay. Um, That relevancy that Joe talked about. At this point in my life, and this is going to sound a little bit crass, but I can pretty much count on two hands the number of people whose opinion I, I really value. In reality, I don't care what the rest of the industry thinks. It's more me going out and having some personal satisfaction with what we've created and what we've built. That's what drives me. And this is a cliche, but to me, the satisfaction is in the journey, not the destination. I'm more interested in the process today than the outcome. And I think that just comes with, with age and perspective. One thing that that really gets me pumped up and gets me going, and we talk about the legacy, I get the most reward from helping young people or new breeders. That's what really, really turns my engine. If I can assist a new breeder or a young person, get a start and help them avoid the myriad of mistakes I've made in my career, then it's worthwhile. And so yeah, my answer doesn't mirror your guys's, but I've also got a little age on you and certainly a, a lot of perspective in my rearview mirror. I think that what I just said is probably going to resonate with folks that are listening of my generation. It's funny you said that because we were driving to go drop off our kids, three of them to go vacation with their grandparents this week. And Abby says, what are you talking about on the podcast? And so I told her and she laughed and she said, why are you writing all this stuff down? You ain't ever going to get there. You got to figure out how to enjoy the journey. Yes. That's exactly what she said. So I think it's like a Y chromosome young problem where she's just like, it was simple for her. She said, you need to figure out what's fulfilling in your life. And I think that the weight of these customers, the weight that they put on my shoulders in terms of the expectations, not that they, they don't put it on me. I put it on myself of these cattle to perform that's the piece that I want to feel fulfilled. And like you said, that's stuff that we can't control, David. This is big Packers stuff. And, and part of this is, you know what? Just enjoy being horseback and seeing a really cool pair walk out and say, you know what? We did that. No, and that's, that's what really amps me up when it's sell time, when it's sell time. And when I've got 100 bulls sitting there or 80 bulls and 50 females, whatever the case may be, I love going out there and watching people go through the pins. And I know not every animal out there is perfect, okay? But the, the real reward to me comes when, when those folks come back and they, they say, boy, you know, we saw a lot of cattle here that really fit what we're needing. We really like what you're doing. That to me is more rewarding than the actual sale itself. Sure. Because I, I know that not every one of those animals is going to go out and perform, okay? No one's do. No one's do. You, you're going to have failures. Um, you know, a, a bull's going to get hurt. A bull's going to fail to breed. A female's going to fail to breed. Or, yeah, she might have had three great calves here. She never does it again for the customer. You know, you have to keep that into perspective. And, and Joe, I, kn- I know you and I have had many conversations in that regard about how nothing hurts you worse than seeing a, an animal you've sold go out and fail. Right. But that's out of your control in most cases. If you've done your part, and brought the goods to the sale ring, the rest of it's out of your control. What's in your control is, is making it right after the fact. In my rap, I would say, you're spot on. I would say, I hope that these folks, when they see the prefix, they say he did everything he did to make the cattle right, rather yes. than to come up with something that was popular and just get it sold. Those two distinctions right there. That's when I get where I'm going, folks will say that about me. They'll say, I may not use his genetics, but we know what he was trying to achieve and they'll do that. And the guy stood behind the cattle 110%. Absolutely. For the young, young listeners out there, if you want to create that legacy in this business, that lasting legacy, 
You want to create that popularity within your client base. Just stand behind the cattle, make them right. No questions asked. That's worth more than you producing the absolute best cattle in the world. Trust me. Absolutely. You know, this is one of those things where it's like when, when I sit back and think about it, when I go to bed at night, if I have a customer that's had problems or something that's not gone right, I think the four of us resonate on this. I have a hard time laying down at night and going to sleep. I mean, I literally, absolutely, it's insane. You feel this weight on your shoulders and you're like, man, I've got to make this right. You're not ever going to make every one of them right because some sometimes stuff happens and customers don't want to hear from you or they're just like, yeah, whatever, just write it off. And But even if I do make it right, I still have this thing eating at me like, man, I sold that guy a bull that didn't work and he was fine with it. It's guilt. I'll tell you what, Corbin, we'll remember that one. And we don't remember the family that I have on the coast that rented a limo and loaded up their friends and drove to our bull sale and drank the whole way and then got out and bought a bunch of bulls and bought bulls on order and then got in and (laughs) left again. Like, why do we choose to remember the bad? Right. Yeah. Like, that's the part of the journey part, David, right? Your journey part is like, let's stop looking at the bad. Is that a man thing? Is that a human thing? Is Are we unique? It's a good person thing. It's a good person thing. Agreed. Are we good people? And there's other people out there that are doing the same thing we're doing. They're like, screw it. Screw them. I'm not even going to think about them. Yep. They're out there. They're out there because we've all had that experience buying those cattle. I think that makes us better when we have an experience like that, a bad experience. Absolutely. So I'll run into a, a bull customer. We'll have a conversation and, and he'll say, well, this bull just didn't work out right. Immediately, there's a pit. Oh, yeah. Well, I will step forward and I'll say, let me make it right. Yeah. I want to make it right. And I think, well, so, so a lot of times they always say, uh, you don't have to do that. And I say, no, I know what it's like to have the shoe on the other foot because I've, I've had a problem. I contacted the breeder and the breeder told me to go pound sand. I'm not going to ask you to go pound sand. You may not even think it's a big deal. You might not think it's a problem. It's a problem. We're going to fix it. And you know, you want to say to him, no, you have to do this for me. You have to, you have to take what yeah. I'm giving you for me because I can't live with it. Yeah, indeed. I've actually told him that I've told him that I said, you know, if, whether it's a new bull, whether it's a check, what a credit, I don't care. But I've got to make this right for me, period. How many times have you toured a herd, David? And you say, Where, where's this bull? They're like, yeah. Oh, he, 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 this or that. And you're like, well, why didn't you call me? Well, it's exactly. not, it's not your deal. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't sell a commodity. Right. I sell genetics and service. That's why you're paying a premium. And so that premium justifies itself because when one of these things go awry in the first breeding season, we'll, we'll make it right. Yeah, absolutely. We'll take care of you because your success, your success predicates ours. Well, and ultimately it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that first breeding season. I want the commercial customer to come to me and say, hey, this bull lasted eight years. This bull lasted three years. This bull lasted four years. I don't care how long it is. And I don't care if they called them for for whatever reason. They may, I just wanted some fresh genetics. That's cool. Let me know. I mean, you know what I mean? It's, I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. I, I am crazy, but. You are crazy. <laughs> You're not crazy because we, we've had some people, we've had people here say, I wish you had some more of these bulls. Why'd you move off of him? Well, and tell them the reason X, Y, Z. Do you want me to make some more? Yes, make some more. And sometimes you'll see this hole in my deal where you go, wait a minute, Joe's still using that pocket of that bull and he hadn't used him in a while. It's because a customer is astute enough to, to see the cattle that are working and ask for more. Joe, I'm going to put in an order for uh, two Midian Focus Sons. Yeah, thank you. Can you make those for me? <laughs> deposits. I take deposits. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you'll use that cane of semen and get eight heifers. I love it. <laughs> and then I'll have to have a female sale. That's your, I know what you're doing. That's the, the diabolical mind of Montana Ranch right there. Female sale. Yes. Oh, man. I was hoping we would get on to uh, another topic, but we'll save it for a future episode. I brought it up in, in my little soliloquy talking about the work life balance. And, uh, I know the four of us have a lot of insight to share there, but guys, we've kind of beat this to a pulp. Uh, I want to ask our listeners out there, give us some feedback. Where will you be when you get where you're going? 
Until next time, keep it underground. This episode of Angus Underground was brought to you in part by Montana Ranch, the source for balanced trade Angus, which are different by design. If you love this episode, head over to where you listen to podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, check us out on social media where you can interact with us and to suggest subjects that you'd like us to cover on upcoming episodes.